Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Today, we're discussing the United Nations General Assembly, or more commonly known as UNGA or even UNGA. And this week, political leaders from across the road are coming to UNGA here in New York City, where I'm at, to discuss what our global priorities should be as we're facing this you know, triple crisis uh, in the in the world and maybe more war, climate, hunger. We're asking, what does UNGA mean and does UNGA matter? And to help answer these questions, I'm joined by my Vital Strategies colleagues and public health experts, Rebecca Pearl, Vice President of Partnership and Initiatives at Vital Strategies, and Nandita Morakutla, Vice President, Global Policy Advocacy and Research. If you're listening live, please feel free to Tweet at VitalStrat or tag at PowerHour, and we'll try and work in your comment or questions into the conversation. So maybe we could just start right off briefly. Rebecca, can you start us off? What is the United Nations General Assembly? And we we can agree to call it UNGA from here on out. Um, And why all the activity this week? So like the United Nations itself, the UNGA or UNGA grew out of World War II. Um, in an effort to make sure something like that never happened again. And the United Nations General Assembly is one of six principal organizations of the UN, and it's the main deliberating body, policymaking, and representative body of the UN. And all 100, 194 countries are represented, and they all have equal representation. Currently, we're in our 77th season. And UNGA is responsible for making um, recommendations about this happens through mostly global resolutions. Um, so these are how things kind of come out from the UN. Um, so this is this is this is what the U- UN is, and it happens every year in New York in late September. The event basically closes down the east side of Midtown Manhattan for about two weeks. I can't think of another event in New York that does that. Maybe you can. Um, Everyone who's anyone and can afford to come, I guess, in global health is there. There's heads of state. There's former presidents. Um, I've seen Trump and Clinton. Matt Damon shows up. The missions are there, the ministries, and hundreds of international NGOs, as well as donors. And the idea, as you mentioned, is to tackle tackle the world's most pressing issues, from war to hunger to migration to civil rights and human rights. And... um, this year, uh, there's obviously this two-week event and also about four, nearly 400 events, hap- uh, side events happening. 
And can you, I mean, a modest to-do list there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, can you paint a picture more of what it looks like with these 400 side events? And I, I suspect that's an undercount. I mean, I know we had a wonderful webinar yesterday on, yeah. uh, you know, on industry, harmful industries and the global goals. Can you paint a further picture of what this looks like? Yeah. So it, here's here's kind of an interesting thing. So this list of events was collected by Global Health Strategies tried to collect them all, gives kind of a, a snapshot. So of the, of the, I guess, 370 events that they were able to collect, almost 200 are on climate and about 70 on health, as well as about 80 on youth and gender, 40 on food and food insecurity. And how about this? Just 13 on COVID. So wow. I'm not sure what happened with COVID, but um, it seems to be, as Biden said, all the, all it's gone. <laughs> right, right. I, I, Nandita, I know that you've been following events, you know, quote, on the floor. And I, that's, I mean, that's sort of shorthand for the more formal proceedings and the pronouncements by the by the heads of state and the government officials. Is, is that right? And can you paint a picture of what that looks like? Um, I'll try. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of what happens in these assemblies and gatherings is outside of the assemblies themselves. So they've become essentially uh, forums for people to come together and in many ways commit to action through financing. So there's been, um, you know, as, as you said at the outset, climate, the war, and uh, food have been top of the agenda at this anger. And it's been an interesting week in terms of funding commitments to a number of these issues. I won't touch upon the Global Fund and, and that replenishment movement, but just touching upon these three, I thought there were a couple of very interesting developments um, in this past week. For one thing, there's been a lot more calls for polluters to pay. And you know, um, in light of the, the webinar yesterday and the work we do on uh, commercial determinants of health or corporate influence on health. I think this is particularly important, not just for climate change and fossil fuels, but as a principle at large. So the call essentially is those that have created the trouble need to pay to clean up. This was something that Antonio Gutierrez talked about this week, uh, attacks on fossil fuels. And Denmark was the first country to announce that they would actually offer loss and damage compensation funding to support developing countries that have experienced climate disruptions, often not of their own making. So I think this is just something to watch for. And, and I would hope we'll see a lot more of this beyond climate change to other areas, um, including in health. A lot of conversation around food insecurity as well this week um, with commitments to it, both from the Gates Foundation as well as the U.S. government. Unfortunately, a lot of it is directed towards agriculture. And um, when I say unfortunate, it's not to say that there isn't a need for that. Um, there isn't a need for strengthening food insecurity and agricultural systems. But we know that over, overweight and obesity is uh, an epidemic that's just completely um, out of control. And the root causes of it, ultra-processed products and a system of promotion of processed foods, is something that needs rapid addressal. It's not come up quite as much in, this, in, in anger or in these conversations, but that's another um, another area that has had attention this week and that I would hope 
will actually pivot towards some of the root causes of um, nutrition issues. I guess you put your finger on something that, you know, I think a lot of, of us wrestle with, you know, we're all, we all work at Vital Strategies and we're dedicated to kind of specific and tangible improvements to health systems that are proven to improve health. So things like, you know, making sure every kid has a birth certificate and legal identity or reducing smoking rates or reducing air pollution. And I feel like every year we sort of wrestle with, um, you know, whether putting time and effort into this moment or how much how much time and effort put into this moment actually ends up with healthier people? Or is it, you know, that some of the criticisms I've heard is that it's kind of echo chamber of, uh, you know, people with power who are, you know, <laughs> repeating statements and having conversations in public that have already been had behind closed doors. I, I, you know, so, you know, the, the title of our, of our chat here, maybe I thought, Rebecca, you could lean into, does Unga matter? Or if it matters, how does it I guess I'd like to pull it apart a little and say, I'm not so sure that UNGA matters, that UNGA matters. But global government, it seems to me, matters deeply. Because the problems we face more and more seem to be on a global scale. Climate change is perfect example or food insecurity across the world, you know, across much of the world. These are things that just simply can't be decided can't be fixed on a national scale. So while national government is critically important, I think you have to look at these issues in a bigger context, issues of migration, of hunger, of and of war. I mean, let's just talk about war for a second. It seems like the only possible way to get Putin to pull back here is the pressure of the global community. And I don't know if that's going to work. I mean, but at least in some pieces it will. Like they're not going to stop the war at, at Onga, but they are making little dents in things like agreeing to transfer prisoners, things like that. There's been a little bit of movement. And so I think that these things are just like the whole reason, again, we go back to World War II, um, these, the UN started. I think that is, a, is really important. Now, how well it's working is a whole other matter. And I think, I mean, I, I have some thoughts about how we could make it work better, but I'll, I'll let Nandita weigh in first. Well, I, I'll just weigh in to add that as much as Anga and these convenings are about multiple governments, they're also about multiple stakeholders. And I think it's really important that we recognize that governance has to come from these multiple stakeholders that's not just elected representatives, but also civil society partners, also uh, groups that live with conditions or live the health inequities that we're seeking to address. It does include private sector. It includes the media. So there are multiple different components of society that are required to come together to solve the problems. And in fact, one of the challenges with the with ANGA and some of these UN-level gatherings has been the keeping out of civil society and civil society being not just an important technical partner, but a partner that supports the implementation of the vision and, and the, the lofty pronouncements being outside of the room or being kept in the dark of how decisions are getting made ultimately hurts um, all of that uh, ambition. So just to echo to say that I think it's bigger than just um, governments. And for that reason, bringing people together is important. Thank you for bringing that to the table. There was a, uh, 
I would say maybe disturbing article that came out from Interpress News Service uh, today. The title is UN bans NGOs during high level meeting of world leaders, triggering strong protests. And it points out that the UN is revoking access to the proceedings for civil society. Um, you know, in, in the article that the UN director of human rights watch calls it quote, end the senseless exclusion of civil society during one of the most important weeks on the calendar, end quote. And then, Dita, I love that you, you know, brought to the table that this isn't about governments. It's also about giving voice to marginalized and folks that don't have um, power. Rebecca, I know you've been tracking this issue for a number of years. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, as you said, um, this is not a new problem, but it's getting worse and worse. So I think during COVID, they, they had a good reason not to allow, to, to limit the number of people who were inside. Um, but now I think that reason has um, kind of largely gone. Um, and so, but they're still keeping this, right? So they were trying to keep meetings at 40 people or that sort of thing. So they use this as a way to kind of say, well, we still want to keep the meetings smaller due, due to COVID. And by the way, there were very few masks uh, at, at events I went to and at, at pictures I saw and things I read, um, masks were not a big part of the proceedings. But um, I think there's always been this issue of the role of civil society and how big a role civil society should play. And in fact, we did a blog about this back in 2000, I think, 19, um, pre-COVID, because it was, a, it was an issue then and it still is an issue. And it's, you know, it's it really doesn't make any sense because civil society is so very much a critical piece of, you know, getting governments to act. Um, we're talking about academics being left out as well, um, you know, advocates and those people who represent the, the voice of people with things like NCDs and, um, you know, chronic diseases or, or malaria or AIDS. And so you really want those people there. You want them and you want the people who represent them. And um, this is, I think, really a, you know, really a shameful situation. And we're always fighting to, to be part of the proceedings and to be part of, to be part of it. Another reason, you know, why we say, you know, if we ignored it, what would happen is civil society just wouldn't be part of it. And that, that would be worse, I think. Yeah. I'm reminded that in one of our previous power hour discussions, we had uh, Greg Gonzalez and Fatima Hassan to talk about, on to talk about vaccine equity. And, but they're both kind of, veterans of the HIV AIDS movement, which in many ways remains the model for successful, you know, international mobilization on health. And the global fund is an outflow of that. Gavi's, you know, investment is an outflow of that and some other very effective mechanisms. And they both pointed out that, you know, elites won't change course. They won't do different. They'll, really, we need grassroots pressure and exposure to create change, um, if we want change within health or within other areas. I'm just curious if either of you have seen groups that are working to elevate the voices of the impacted and of, of marginalized communities in, in, in UNGA. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of groups doing that. Actually, Latin America, the contingent from Latin America this year called out UNGA, you know, to, to end sort of the decolonialization the colonialization of UNGA, um, you know, talking about how sort of there is a lot of, um, you know, Europe and the U.S. kind of 
somehow, even though it's not supposed to be this way, somehow has the lead in, in, in the issues, somehow has a lot of the power, I guess, because they have more of the money. And so there has been kind of a calling out of this. Um, and it's true. I mean, if you kind of often, if you look at sort of who's speaking or who's chairing or who's, you know, it's um, who's leading or who's bringing issues to the table, it's those people who bring the money. So that's that's a problem, too. Yeah, it was. There was another great article um, in Politico uh, by Ryan Heath, mm-hmm. and the title was "Unga is Dead: mm-hmm. It's the Sideshows That Matter." Mm-hmm. And another interesting feature of this article um, uh, that I want to dig into a little bit is that he noted the increase uh, increased interest of non-state actors like big corporations, and pointed out that Microsoft now is a building dedicated to UN relations that's mm-hmm. larger than some embassies. <laughs> and, um, you know, UN officials and government officials are showing up at these, you know, uh, corporate events during UNGA. Um, and it's it, it's interesting, on the one hand, it's frustrating to see policy agendas influenced by these big actors, but on the other hand, they wouldn't be investing if they thought this process didn't matter. So I, I also take it as a sign that we need to stay involved. Mandita, I was wondering if you've seen the hand of industry in any of the proceedings. You know, we keep a especially close eye on big tobacco, the ultra-processed food industry. Have you seen any evidence of their influence, of, of the influence of harmful industries or any anything on that front? Sure. I mean, and, and maybe I'll just back a little bit to even just talk about the role of industry in these convenings. And like you, I find it fascinating that they're they're so engaged. I find the SDG um, analysis that they do, that companies do around how they're compliant with these goals, um, the ESG scores that they publish, all of it really indicates companies see profit also in buying into the into the global goals and presenting themselves as having bought into it and contributing to it. And I think that really harkens back to how people are feeling about the issues, particularly climate change right now, because it's a lived reality. It's no longer something people can deny. Um, and and so with that, I think corporations have learned and listened. And so they're likewise pivoting themselves to be seen as actually contributing um, towards, um, towards development in that sense. The influence of corporations is frankly terrifying um, because on the one hand, as much as we need private sector investment and as much as we need private sector to do their bit, with profits being their ultimate motive, they're never actually going to be looking at society at large and certainly not at those communities that are hardest to reach. There's a fascinating article in The Guardian last week about neoliberalism, and it was in the context of the UK elections. But there was a particular line in that article that caught my eye, and it was that if we expect markets to deliver our benefits and governments give up their planning then what we have is essentially societies that, you know, and to my mind, societies in which commerce then is delivering the goods that governments ought to be delivering. And so that's essentially the system that we're finding ourselves in. Um, Even the food investments in, in this past week, all of it towards food security crisis and towards agriculture is good, but doesn't quite go far enough because it doesn't actually address the bigger public health issue around overweight and obesity. 
Um, there was a paper published in this past week and also presented during Anger that looked at the economic impacts of overweight and obesity, and they've estimated that it's about 2.19% of annual GDP worldwide. That, that number itself might not sound particularly high, but translated another way, those authors also describe how a 5% decrease in obesity would save countries $430 billion a year. So there's something off with the, the economics and the math that we see play out in forums like Anger, and at the heart of it is essentially this industry interference or a certain lens for how development should occur for a few people and with, um, with health and commodities delivered by a private sector. Thanks. And, and Rebecca, you had a, a, a whole a webinar on this, a great webinar called, um, you know, Deadly Sway, mm -hmm. Harmful Industries and the Global Goals, where you discussed with other panelists, you know, what we can do about this and how we can improve UNGA to make it more resistant to these global, um, you know, harmful actors or vested interests. Do Can you describe some of the takeaways from that conversation? Yeah, sure. I think... You know, one of the things we were kind of we were talking about is ring fencing these unhealthy commodity industries. These are like arms and tobacco and alcohol and um, unhealthy ultra processed foods, which drive chronic diseases. And so if you can get to the roots of those things and prevent some of them, then that's that can really be helpful towards towards getting at SDG goals, the sustainable global goals that are sort of our to-do list for the for what the UN wants to do. And unfortunately, things like tobacco touches all the SDGs. Um, it's not just, for instance, that it touches health, it also touches education in that. Um, if, if the father in the family is addicted to cigarettes, then he might use, and I've seen this really happen in real time, um, he might use and does use the small amount of money that the family has to buy cigarettes, not to pay school fees for their children. So in that way, it's affecting education, just one example. So to get back to your question, I think we know that there are these technical packages, ways that we can actually put in policies and something called the best buys, which is something WHO holds, which are policies that are relatively easy to enact and have really give you a strong benefit for your money. So really a good money back guarantee for this work. And those are the things we have to focus on. Those are things like taxing um, these unhealthy commodities like alcohol or trying to eliminate advertising, especially when kids are watching, or trying to limit availability of these kinds of products, like in vending machines where nobody's watching who's buying them. So I think those are some of the ways. Um, and WHO has some good packages to do these things. I think we also have to just keep hitting the fact that some of these, you know, that some of these industries really like tobacco should be made pariahs in this in this space. And you know, they are and they're not. Like the UN says, well, we, they won't allow them. But the UN Foundation, which funds a lot of the UN, it does allow sort of the Coca-Colas of the world and alcohol industries to, to help with the funding of the UN. That's a problem. And um, 
And while tobacco isn't allowed into the UN, just the way well, the rest of us weren't allowed in this year, you know, they can have side events. And they did something called Concordia, where Philip Morris was really front and center. And some of the old actors in something called the uh, it, it, within um, tobacco were also having events. So it's really hard to keep, you know, it's, it's difficult to keep everybody out in the ways we would like to. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of speaks to how we started this conversation off as a group that really wants to really focuses on on uh, supporting countries and advancing these best buy policies or technical packages. You know, sometimes it seems they don't show up um, as much, you know, on, you know, in these proceedings. In fact, uh, in that same political article that's Unger is dead, it's the sideshows that really matter. Um, you know, my take on which quotes, it, you know, it quotes senior global government and NGO leaders. I mean, my read of the takeaway is that the formal workings of UNGA are stalled. They don't really generate much momentum on any topic. And the governments kind of spend the time preaching to their own constituencies. But that surrounding that is a lot of, you know, the gatherings of powerful people. And as you said, Nandita, a lot of, you know, resource mobilization, but in some ways, some that have that have already been agreed, and they, they use this moment to kind of influence the agenda. Um, so, in a, in a way that that UNGA itself, that's one of the most important pieces, is just this is becomes this moment for signaling commitments and generating a lot of visibility. You know, do you think that's true, and is that enough? Um, I'm curious if either of you have a take on that. I mean, I'll just start by saying I think UNGA is for is uh, about high-level political commitment, and therefore it's where, when the SDGs were adopted, that's where it occurs. Or, for instance, when we want to elevate NCDs to the highest forum, it is in Anga. A lot of the nitty-gritty of health policy making otherwise would happen at the World Health Assembly. So as, as a moment towards policy making in fora like the World Health Assembly, UNGA has an important role for building political clout and and uh, and commitment. But in and of itself, it's not necessarily where I think our work stops. For instance, speaking of the best buys that Rebecca mentioned earlier, all of us will be working towards that, um, towards World Health Assembly 2023 to make sure we're protecting some of the important ones that are in the latest draft of the the Best Buy actions for NCD prevention. And Rebecca, do you want to build on that? Um, you know, I I would like to just sort of switch out a little bit to say one of the things I've noticed from being at these proceedings is a lot is that another problem here. I mean, I agree with everything Nancy is saying, but another problem here is simply the proceedings themselves. They could be streamlined and more transparent, and maybe a lot more could get done. So, for instance, what to me, what the UNGA really needs is a good facilitator. Even a good chair can make a world of difference. And I've seen I've seen one individual whose superpower was running these meetings, and it's extraordinary what can be done if you have a really strong statesman at the helm. So I just want to give you a quick example. Um, Let's say that the discussion is about national sovereignty and somebody gets up South Africa and makes a speech for 45 minutes about the importance of national sovereignty. And it's a good speech and he talks about justice and, it, you know, a lot of people, it, it, it resonates with a lot of people. 
Then what happens, instead of moving along and sort of adding that to a document or talking about how we're going to move that idea forward because there was some innovation in it, what ha- follows the eloquent speech is 48 countries in Africa raise their hands to speak, and they say almost the same thing to the letter. They agree with what South African leader says, and they pretty much repeat it. Um, so this takes up an, ha- an entire day of a of a six-day working meeting on, on health issues. And maybe this is their intention, but a good moderator, like the one I'm thinking of, will step in and say, okay, if you agree with South Africa, please just raise your hand now and we will acknowledge everyone who agrees in the record. But unfortunately, diplomacy rarely works this way. So you get a lot of eloquent or ineloquent speeches that go nowhere. And I think you could really streamline this process, not only in the length of how long you talk about something, but even in a role for civil society. There's never time for civil society. In this case, there was no civil society. Or um, they use a language that is impenetrable to most people. So I think all these things could actually help. And they're actually, I think they're doable. That's great. I mean, as a communications person, I agree completely with the, with the language. And I see these uh, declarations or, you know, um, s- some of the names of these side events, they're filled with acronyms, you know, that you really yeah. have to have a PhD to figure out, you know, you have to know a lot about the system and what each, you know, what each acronym refers to, to even, you know, get the gist of it. Um, Nandi, mm-hmm. do, do you have, I love, I love this topic of how we can improve ANGA. Um, do you have any thoughts? I think Rebecca, it's, she hit the, the note perfectly. Um, I think the other the other one is just using it as civil society to make those connections and find uh, cross fertilization across areas. Especially as we we said at the outset, all of these areas are ultimately connected to a set of root causes that are common, and therefore I think um, maximizing that is a is another way to. Um, to strengthen our engagement at ANGA. And then this has been such a great conversation. And as we're as sort of beginning to wrap up, do you want to call out any other, I mean, one thing you spoke about, Rebecca, was that we're seeing climate come to the fore in a way that we haven't previously. Are there other moments or trends or even events that you'd like to call out uh, that are generating positive momentum for health or or even around uh, sort of multilateral consensus building? Um, yes, sure. Um, I'll mention a couple things that were talked about, not so much on health, but just overall important. As Nandita mentioned, the Global Fund, which is for malaria, HIV, and TB, um, was able to raise $14 million, sorry, $14 billion. The fund is looking for $18 billion, but they were able to raise fourteen. So that's good. And part of that commitment came from the U.S., about $6, million, $6 billion there. So that was important. Um, another thing that was very much at UNGA was very much pushed was um, educa- an education summit that took up a couple of days. And what, what came out of this was some UNICEF um, stats and stuff that are pretty alarming that one in three 10-year-olds can't read. And some, this is something we really need to do something about and something that COVID has made worse, significantly worse, not better. Um, so those were two areas um, that that I just wanted to mention. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that COVID is the, uh, was, hasn't, been, hasn't been highlighted in a lot of the materials yep. I've seen, but we're dealing with the impact of COVID, right? Yes. Social unrest, 
you know, economies, education, um, you know, poverty worsened. And yet there's not, there hasn't been as much attention as maybe we public health professionals would like to see around strengthening the world towards the, towards the next COVID. But, yeah. and, and I also agree, it's great to see the Global Fund, which is such a model of effectiveness, um, get, you know, get close to the funding mm-hmm. needs to needs to succeed. Nandita, would you like to call out any events or trends or moments that, that struck you? Uh, no, just reiterating food insecurity that is clearly top of the agenda and will continue to be top of the agenda. Um, there's been a lot of talk about debt and um, a number of countries expected to go into crisis and a repetition of of what happened in the 80s um, with health systems failing. So that's, some again, a, an alarm bell I heard. Um, so, com- you know, combining climate with debt and then food insecurity, there'll be a number of, I think, additional secondary effects that we'll have to watch for and look for, um, in particular violence, violence against women. Again, that was another issue I think highlighted in this past anger. Um, I'll end with one, which is NCDs. Um, it, it, it got prominence with the latest WHO report that now finds that two thirds of all deaths are in fact, or I'm sorry, three quarters of deaths in the world are due to NCDs. So it's just, it's no longer uh, a side issue in any calculation. So that I think was also um, a remarkably important uh, uh, report in this past week. That's yeah. Thank you for bringing that. Uh, you know, it's 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 hard to have faith in multilateralism in this moment, right? We've got war and global unrest, and our action on climate doesn't seem to match sort of the urgency of this issue. And I'm struck by the contrast in a way. If you follow these proceedings at all, the last two years were so sober and also virtual. Um, which made them, and you know, this year we had this incredible energy. We literally have the biggest names and the biggest players taking the stage. And um, there's, there's sort of, despite the fact that I feel um, maybe some um, incredulity around whether this moment is, is really directing very concrete um, momentum towards some of the these technical packages we talked about, there, there does seem to be like a return to some level of engagement around the importance of of tackling these issues together. And thank you both for unpacking that with me. I mean, one of the takeaways I'm getting from you is that, you know, UNGA has its, you know, tribulations as a a political body, but but there are some ways that we could improve it and that we need it. There are these giant problems that we need cooperation and multilateralism to solve it. um, And that there's some important things happening on the sidelines. Um, as a final thought, would you like to, to add anything, uh, Rebecca? Well, I'll, this is something Nandita said to me at one point, so I might be stealing her thunder, but I remember I really thinking this was an important thing to say, and that is, you know, you know, UNGA, like any kind of government body, has all the same problems as, as say, um, you know, community government or like, you know, local government. It can be um, very slow moving and it can be um, very petty. It's all the same problems, but but it's what we've got to work with. So we can't just ignore it, I'm afraid. How about you, Nandita? Closing thought? 
<laughs> well, I'll add to that to say that I think unpacking how it works and getting familiar with it and knowing how to exercise one's rights within it is also an inc incredibly important challenge as well as tasks for all of us that are interested in these processes. And in, in that sense, this is the one space where external pressure, um, the pressure that comes from presenting oneself on a global stage, may have powerful effects. So that in itself is something worth uh, bearing in mind as we engage in, in these fora. Thank you for that. And yet you said to me the other day when we were sort of talking about this water cooler, for, for groups uh, that live in authoritarian environments or you know in places where they don't have a voice, we need the global stage to bring some level of attention and accountability um, you know, to to their needs and to, to how their world and their health has been impacted. I want to thank you both for this really great chat. Um, and if you're listening, thank you for tuning in, uh, for learning and joining us on this journey we have to reimagine a world where everyone everywhere is protected by a strong and equitable public health system. Many thanks also to our producer, Nana Sase, our digital lead, Dane Svensson, to Ali Davis and Christina Honeyset for their support in putting together today's Power Hour. And if you enjoyed this episode, Please follow us on Twitter at Vital Strat to listen into the next live chat. And if you're listening on podcast, please hit that subscribe button. This is Steve Hamill signing off for the Public Health Power Hour. Thank you both. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Vital Strat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.